Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring our physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. And you can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to the guest microphone is Dr. Francie Broghammer, an energetic young psychiatrist and mother, that's important to this topic, who is going to help us understand postpartum mood disorders. Not only the baby blues, one of my favorite comic strips, but also more serious problems that may affect mothers shortly after giving birth. So we're firmly in the territory of your patient population, Chris. How important do you see this topic? Well, you know, at the risk of sounding pretty self-serving and self-interested, I don't know of many topics that are more important, or at least that have a greater potential to affect more people's lives. Because I I think as our discussion goes, listeners will get a real sense for, you know, how widespread the problem is and for how many people can be affected. It's not just the mom, obviously, you know, but it has the potential to have devastating effects on on the mom, on her spouse, on the relationship between the spouse and the baby, and the mom and the baby, and the mom and the siblings, and the mom and her friends, and it just goes on and on. It, it is literally the you know the the pebble that drops in a lake, and so it's a, it's an incredibly important topic. I think the other thing is, like so many things in mental health, we like to just sweep it under the rug. And, and that's part of the disease, wanting to sweep it under the rug. You know, there's really nothing wrong with me. Everybody gets this. Uh, I don't need to tell anybody. I don't need any help. I think we'll get a lot more out of that from our guests. But, but listeners, please, uh, even if you're not in the baby having age or you're not interested in having babies, someone <laughs> you know either has been or will be affected by a postpartum mood disorder. And remember, we're not just talking about the blues like you mentioned, Tom. We're talking about depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and even the worst combination, which is postpartum psychosis. So get comfortable and lend an ear. I think this is really a relevant topic. So Chris, what are the main hormone changes that take place in a woman going from non-pregnant to pregnant? Yeah, there's a couple of big ones and, and they're easy to remember and you've heard of all of them. In no certain order, the first one is HCG, or human chorionic gonadotropin. It's the hormone everybody knows because it turns a pregnancy test positive, right? But HCG actually has an important job. I mean, it it works on the milk glands and some other things. It comes from the baby, more specifically the placenta. But its real job is it drives the production of the next hormone we're going to talk about, progesterone. So HCG is a big one. It drives up progesterone. HCG kind of peaks at the beginning of the pregnancy and then really just trails off as the pregnancy goes on. Progesterone, my favorite of all hormones in human physiology, progesterone <laughs> is the magic hormone in my life. In my life, I think it's the magic hormone. <laughs> uh, and in those of us who are part of the Creighton fertility model, we really take progesterone seriously. Progesterone just gradually increases the entire pregnancy. It is a critical hormone that does too many things even uh, to mention. But you, we can say uh, succinctly, the absence of progesterone leads to all flavors of badness. Uh, the next one everybody knows, estrogen, or as our British friends like to call it, oestrogen. Um, <laughs> You know, everyone thinks of estrogen in pregnancy, right? Because we're talking about women. But estrogen, like progesterone, just climbs the entire pregnancy and really peaks right towards the due date. Prolactin, now that is a really important hormone. It's released by the pituitary gland and it works in the production of breast milk and letdown of the breast milk. It just gradually increases the entire pregnancy. There's another funny one called relaxin, kind of involved with the skin. That's in your uh, in your uh, area of expertise. And it does a lot of important things, one of which relaxes the muscles and allows the, the, the pelvic bones to actually flex a little bit to make the birth opening bigger. And then lastly, I'd throw in there 
oxytocin, or we call it pitocin, the feel good, the love hormone. But that one is really important. It spikes, guess what? Right at labor because it causes contractions. But those are really probably the six most prevalent, the most important uh, hormones that change from the non-pregnant woman to the pregnant woman. So what happens to these right after childbirth that might drive some of these disorders? Yeah. You know, it's pretty interesting. Most of them just plummet right after childbirth. Uh, prolactin doesn't because it keeps going up for right. milk. milk. Down for, yeah. For breast, but, but progesterone has a natural tendency to plummet afterwards. One that I didn't mention that I'll be really interested to hear what our guest thinks about related to postpartum mood disorders is the male hormone testosterone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet a lot of listeners would be shocked to learn that women make testosterone like men. Now, in much, much smaller quantities than men, but they do. And in my own practice, we find that some women who are suffering from postpartum mood disorders, they really need some testosterone and they'll feel better almost immediately. Uh, oxytocin, pitocin kind of goes away. Relaxin kind of goes away. Estrogen sort of goes back to normal. But the big ones, I think, are probably progesterone, maybe prolactin, maybe we'll toss in a little for testosterone. So last question before we head to the trivia question, and that is how common is this in your practice? Yeah, postpartum mood disorders, it's hard to get a reliable sort of read, you might say, because so much of it is swept under the rug. You know, the more you look for it, the more you find it. In my practice, really in the last couple of years, we've really started looking hard oh. uh, to try to find it. And there's a push among, I think, all OBGYNs uh, to try to early diagnose and early intervention for postpartum mood disorders. But th- the short answer to your question is it is incredibly common. Much, At least a third of women, I think, and some studies will, will increase that number even higher. Can't wait to hear what our guest has to say about that. That's a great prep for what Francis is going to talk about. And before the break, our trivia question. Category, daily births in the United States. It's a multiple choice. (laughs) Well, you're right. You're right. According to the CDC website, how many births per day took place on average in the United States during 2020, the last year that we have full data? And therefore, how many opportunities were there each day for a woman to develop a postpartum mood disorder? Was it closest to A, 1,000, B, 3,000, C, 5,000, D, 10,000, or E, 25,000 births per day? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer. But before that, we'll be back with Francie Broghammer here on Dr. Doctor right after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we have with us returning to the guest microphone, Dr. Francie Broghammer. She's a young psychiatrist, graduate of Notre Dame, University of California, Irvine Medical School, and recently completed her residency actually over a year ago at UC Irvine. She is now running an inpatient psych unit in the state of Minnesota, those lucky patients. She has academic and clinical interests in medical ethics, education, spirituality, and human flourishing. She resides in Minnesota with her husband and three young children. Welcome back to Dr. Dr. Francie. Thank you guys for having me. Delighted to be here as always. Yeah, Tom, Don't you know, you know not, yes. just, not just everyone would be so bold as to come back. You know, it's one thing to come on <laughs> once, but to come it, on more than once, that's a that's a pretty small fraternity of people. It's a, it's a new category on the MMPI test now that you have to check yes to. <laughs> so right. uh, inside joke. Sorry. So having a baby is supposed to be one of the most joyful times in a woman's life. But how often is the moment not joyful? How often does this lead to blaming oneself? for not feeling joy after the birth of a little human being that has half your DNA? Oh, heavy hitting questions right out of the gates. I know to expect this from you by now. This is a really important question. So I'm really glad you asked it because the reality is, is up to 90% of women can have (gasps) hormone fluctuations, mood fluctuations, all of these things in the first couple weeks after pregnancy. Mm. And everyone around you is going to go, aren't you the happiest you've ever been, this bundle of joy? (laughs) And it's not only that you're experiencing these mood swings or uncomfortable symptoms, whatever it may be, it's that you're then contrasting that to the world telling you, aren't you so happy? And you start to say, is something wrong with me because I'm not this level of happy that the world perceives I should be. So it's kind of a one-two punch, if you will. But I will let you know that it's more common than not that women have some type of a hormone, well, definitely they'll have a hormone swing, but an accompanying mood swing with that mm-hmm. um, in the couple of weeks following the birth of a child. 
you know, right about now, every father out there who's been through childbirth is giving it a big head nod. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're thinking, I'm going to listen to this show. This lady knows what she's talking about. But, and I bet but, there's lots of dads listening to this topic, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard it said, uh, too, that men very often experience all kinds of mood disorders, maybe related to the mood disorder that their wife is experiencing. Have you seen that as well? Absolutely. And actually, the research wow. shows that up to 4% of men mm. can have postpartum depression as well. Wow. And the evidence for this, I think, is wow. really beautiful, right? When, when we become married, two become one. Mm. And then when we take this to a very fundamental biologic level, we have these mirror neurons. When you are closely tied to another individual, they yawn, you yawn. They <laughs> smile, you smile, right? And if your life partner is going through a very challenging time, maybe in a bout of depression or anxiety, you, as a result of those mirror neurons and this close biological connection, are more likely to experience very similar symptoms as well. Wow. Well, it's funny when the, the biology and the theology match up so beautifully like that, even when it's talking about a pathological process. Right. Yeah. Perhaps not a coincidence, right? <laughs> That's a for better, for worse example. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. well, what's been your own experience of this, Francie, with your babies? Oh, goodness. Well, I will not to self-disclose too much, which is normally a no-no in the field of psychiatry, but this is a now funny story. We're not story. your patient. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is now funny in hindsight, but in the moment it was terrifying and really sad. Um, but I'll never forget when my, my son is now eight, almost eight and a half, and he was about three weeks old. And my husband woke up in the middle of the night and I was sitting in the hallway of our one bedroom apartment right outside the door, just sobbing uncontrollably, <laughs> like 2 a.m. And he comes out, he's like, Francie, what is going on? And I look up at him and I go, I don't think you love our son enough. <laughs> and he just, <laughs> he looked at me and was like, what? What spurred this? It's 2 a.m. Like he's been home <laughs> on paternity leave with me. And there was, of course, no really like justifiable, I could point to this or he was doing that or not doing this. It's just, you're on this kind of roller coaster mm. of new experiences of hormones and things that you would never think things that you would never feel all of a sudden are there and are prevalent. So I will say being a medical professional, being in the field of mental health does not make me immune to this. I ride those <laughs> roller coasters postpartum just like everyone else, which means my partner also rides them with me for better or for worse. <laughs> well, I know Tom is dying to ask you this question. I'll steal it from him and he can jump in. But, you know, help listeners understand the difference between you know, crying at dog food commercials uh, and feeling like everything in the world is a Hallmark show after the baby's born and something that's much more serious. So the so-called baby blues that Tom and I have both lived through several times and our spouses mm -hmm. and, and something more serious like postpartum depression or another mood disorder. How, how, do we, how do we navigate between those? How do we know? Sure. That's a great question. And top of mind for everyone when you start either seeing someone feeling this way or feeling this way yourself. And the the general cutoff, there's a couple metrics you can use. The first one's going to be length of time. So mm. if it persists much beyond about two weeks and you find that it's not either getting less or going away completely after that period of time, then that could be where you're starting to cross that threshold. Um, other indications could be if it's associated with suicidal thoughts, thinking you would be better off dead, um, which is something very harrowing to talk about, but very important to talk about as well, because it can be a, a normal part of the experience of depression and especially the experience of postpartum depression. Um, another metric could be if you have psychosis associated with it, start hallucinating in some way. Um, and then the one that perhaps is most common is going to be the severity not only persists, but gets worse to the point that you can't really engage in your day-to-day -day functioning. I'm talking about, I know it's hard postpartum to get out of bed and, and do the laundry or make sure the, the kitchen's clean. But I'm like, I'm talking about when you haven't eaten in two, three, four meals because you can't possibly fathom the thought of getting out of bed and you just don't care about things anymore. And maybe you've gone two weeks without showering, not necessarily because it's hard to be a new mom, but because you know what, you can't muster the motivation or the energy. Hmm. I think that last one is probably so hard for listeners to fathom if they haven't experienced it or seen it. I know in a family member of mine, um, my wife and I came up with all of these great plans that were going to solve her postpartum issues. And she responded so sincerely, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And we thought, oh, this is worse than we thought. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's that I can't get out of bed, not because my leg is broken. I can't get out of bed because I can't imagine the act of getting out of bed. Right. 
It's like you have an elephant on your chest. You're 10,000 pounds and there's no energy. And you bring up, I'm going to segue here. I'm going to hijack the next question from you, if you don't mind. (laughs) Go ahead. Jack away. (laughs) So this brings up a really important point. And everyone always says, can I manage my symptoms without medication? And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes Mm. the answer is no. But this is essentially the distinction point that we're getting at. Because mental health, really, I like to think of it as a puzzle, which means there's lots of pieces to this puzzle. Medications, therapy, relationships, diet, exercise, spirituality, all of these things are pieces. So the piece of mental health that is medications in and of itself isn't sufficient to make the whole puzzle picture appear. But sometimes when you're in that state where you can't possibly fathom getting out of bed, if someone looks at you and says 30 minutes a day of cardiovascular exercise is helpful for mild to moderate depression, you're going to say, forget that. There's no (laughs) shot I'm getting out of bed. So sometimes you need that medication just to kind of get you. I say medication doesn't take you from negative to positive, but it can take you more from negative closer to neutral where you can really lean into the things that allow you to build a more robust picture of mental health, if you will. Did you say three or 30 minutes of exercise? (laughs) I said 30, definitely. Good, good. good. I mean, three, maybe they would roll out for three minutes. I don't know. So with postpartum depression, it sounds like anhedonia or lack of pleasure is a big feature of it. So that can be. And and the way depression appears for everyone is a little bit different. Okay. Um, for, for some people, it can be either a huge increase in their need to sleep or they'll feel like they need to sleep more. Their energy is really low, but they absolutely cannot fall asleep. It can okay. be on either end of the spectrum. Uh, sure. So anhedonia, lack of joy is another one excessive feelings of guilt. And this one is especially Ah. pertinent for new mothers because Mm. am I not doing it right? Are the bottles not clean enough? Am I loving my baby enough? That excessive guilt really tends to factor in. Um, And then it's going to be difficulty focusing, right? You Mm. and I are going to sit here and have this conversation, but if I'm in a state of pretty severe depression, it might be really hard for me to attend to this conversation. Um, We can see typical swings in appetite, um, levels of energy, things like that as well. But I think guilt is another big one that jumps off the page. Hmm. And that would you would you say that as part of postpartum depression as opposed to other postpartum mood disorders, or would that be more of a blanket statement for all of the mood disorders? So, the the feelings of guilt are intimately linked for both uh, postpartum depression and anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, OCD being an offshoot of anxiety, and we can maybe get into that a little bit. Hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that if you experience postpartum depression, your risk of having concomitant anxiety is significantly higher. Uh-huh. It's it's relatively rare that I'll see an isolated depression or anxiety. Oftentimes they're kind of intertwined uh-huh. and like like a braid, you know, you can't treat one without treating the other because you uh-huh. have to address both to really untangle the knot, you know? Mm. Oh, very good. So what are some of the medications that can make a difference? Because I know like the standard SSRIs, they can take weeks to kick in. Yeah, what can you do right. to help women, you know, more quickly. Right. So the first line recommended treatment, once you cross this threshold, is going to be an SSRI. Um, And the unfortunate part of that is they take four to six weeks to kick in. But this is where we start screening early and often with our OBGYNs, like Chris here, right? And so, and sometimes we have to start at a low dose and go up slowly. And then you're ideally going to be partnering that with some type of therapy. And you're ideally going to be partnering that with increased support from your family. And the reality is, is this isn't something that gets better today or tomorrow. We can address it today or tomorrow. We can start the treatment today or tomorrow. Hmm. This is something that when it's treated appropriately with the options that we have available, and we kind of take this all hands on deck approach, you don't wake up next week and say, everything's better. But all of the sudden, my patients who are successfully treated will come back in six, eight, 10 weeks and say, I don't know what it is, doc. But things are a little bit easier. I'm finding Mm. a little bit more joy when I go out. It's this incremental shift day over day over day. And so you're right. The treatment does take a little bit of time to kick in, which is why if we're at all thinking it could be helpful, it's often best to start at a low dose today. And we can always stop it if we have side effects or if we need to. But it's best to get that ball rolling if we feel that it's going to be important. Are there medications, and we're in no way trying to do a pharmaceutical advertisement, but (laughs) are, are there certain medications that you think Uh, are better or less good um, than others? So it really depends on the individual. Mm. Um, We have, for example, a few years ago, the FDA approved a medication called brexenolone, which is um, a steroid. It's a progesterone analog, essentially. And it can, it's supposedly effective in a much shorter period of time. The reality is, is it's not 
overly applicable in a clinical setting because it's incredibly expensive. It has to be right. infused and monitored. And oh so it's my. just not, a, it's not available to most individuals, right? This is similar to the ketamine conversation for treatment refractory depression. It's, <laughs> it can be helpful. There's good evidence for it, but it's really hard to get your hands on in kind of a mainstream setting. So that being said, I think there's promising options out there. We're just not there quite yet. Mm -hmm. As far as like short term, let's treat it today or tomorrow. Some people are doing some off the books interventions, um, which you and I had talked about off screen um, beforehand. <laughs> and there is, it's early, you know, very, very yeah. small amounts of this are FDA approved and they're not considered first line treatment yet. But this is why it's really recommended you work very closely with your provider to figure out for your situation, what's going to be most appropriate in your setting. And what I will say, piggybacking off of all of this, is if we are considering a medication, one of, and it more often than not for like a postpartum depression or anxiety is going to be a medication called Zoloft mm. um, or sertraline is the other name. And that's because we have some of the most robust evidence for this specific SSRI in the peripartum period. Um, it's shown to have fewer adverse effects on baby, if any, and have very scant amounts, if any, in the breast milk. And so if you are chatting with your daughter or your doctor and you're thinking about starting an SSRI, chances are Zoloft will be the mm. first one tried because we have the most evidence for both efficacy and safety in the peripartum period. You know, I think I know the answer listening to you, but how, how do you answer the question to patients where the woman says, oh, I get it, I'm in trouble, but I don't want to take a medication. I'm afraid it'll harm my baby. How, how do you speak to that as her psychiatrist? Right. And so this is where we have to take a step back and look at the whole picture. Yes. Right. Because what is most damaging to baby? Is, uh -huh. your is your depression or anxiety so mild that you're able to still engage and attend to your baby in a meaningful way? Fine. Then maybe talking about a five days a week exercise regimen and increasing your social supports is appropriate. Mm. But if you're at the point where you can't get out of bed, you're not doing the new normal goo goo gaga right back to your baby so that they can develop these mirror neurons and learn these cues. It's actually a harm to your baby to let depression or anxiety go untreated because you can't attend to them in the way that a mother without some of these ailments would in the postpartum period. And so we have to really take into account all impacts, not just the impact of the Zoloft in your serum at that moment, right? Well, that plus also the effect in your family and you know, other kids, husband, yep. that, that could be destructive. I mean, how often have you seen women unwilling to take that and then see the downstream negative effects at home? More, that's a great point that you bring up more often than not, but I, I choose to think even, or the way I practice is even in the acute postpartum period, if we're saying we're not going to start a medication today, that's great. I want to see you back in seven to 10 days and I'm not going to push yeah. a medication at that time, but we just need very close and frequent measurements of what direction we're trending in. Because if we start to Good. see increased marital discord, things like that, then we need to say, okay, we weren't there last week, but we're there today. So let's get rocking and rolling. Oh, yeah. Great answer. Thank you. It's that sticky difficult topic of, you know, relative risk that Tom and I've talked to so many guests across the spectrum of medicine. Right. Things aren't simple in black and white. And there's rarely in a health decision, is there a no risk alternative, but there are relative risk. And, and I love the way you said that. What's the greatest risk to the baby? You, you not functioning uh, as the baby's mother. We've got to take that into account. Right. And if I could so even adding to that in the, the, the peripartum period before baby is born, we know that depression and anxiety going untreated can actually lead to early births, decreased birth weights, and baby more likely to end up in the NICU. So it's not as simple as, oh, I don't want to take a medication when I'm pregnant because, again, yeah. baby could have worse outcomes at birth if we're not appropriately treating symptoms that are so severe they could be negatively impacting mm. baby. Should some moms be looking at their risk for developing this before giving birth? Sure. I think and everybody should. How do they do that? <laughs> easier said than done. But I think the thing we can do looking around is saying, what has my family gone through? Did my mom have it? Did my sister have it? Did my grandma have it? What about my aunt? Right? Because that tells us something about the genes you're most likely to inherit. So that's going to be the first piece. Um, the second piece is what am I going through at this point in time? We know individuals at higher risk for developing um, peripartum mood disorders are going to be those who are a little bit younger. Um, first time moms. So more likely to happen with your first baby than your third, fourth or fifth, because you kind of 
know what to expect at that point. If you're going through financial strain at that time or significant relationship strain, if you're a victim of abuse or part intimate partner violence, those all increase your risk. So mm -hmm. that's not only something that the individual should be taking note of, but their physician should as well. As we're, we're doing these, Chris, you know, as we're doing all the, the prenatal appointments, okay, what's kind of going on at home? I know what baby's heart rate is today, but is she talking, she's showing up with bruises? Are they talking about not being able to afford the appointments? And just noting that her risk will be higher as a result of some of these social factors as well. Now, you mentioned, you know, the importance sort of of a multi-pronged approach. So certainly in some cases, medication is going to be one of them. And then you mentioned they should be in some kind of a, of a therapy or a counseling relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as an OBGYN, that's where I've struggled the most is finding you know, someone like you that, that is willing to, to get involved and, and take care. Are there, are there different kinds of counselors that you feel might be better or, or less, less good for counseling postpartum depression? And how do you try to guide patients towards the right resources there? That's the million dollar question here. Cause we, I mean, here's the, the, re the ugly reality is we are in a dearth of mental health care in America, right? We wow. do not have enough providers to go around. So general rule of thumb, I say, don't wait for the perfect person. Start with something. You know, they'll mm. say, oh, I read their bio. It didn't feel quite right. It's like, go give it a shot because <laughs> the reality is your next appointment might not be available for six months. And maybe you go and it's great, or maybe you go and it's terrible. And we say on to the next one. That's mm. fine. Um, but so we need to realize that it's hard to come by these resources. So let's not be overly picky and choosy. That being said, if we can, if we do have the luxury, um, someone who's worked extensively with women, especially women, women in the peripartum period, I would definitely recommend that. Um, and then beyond that, the question is what types of modalities, right? There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's acceptance and commitment therapy. There's psychodynamic therapy and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what do these words even mean, Right. The reality is, is a lot of therapists out there will do a little bit of this and a little bit of that based off what their patient needs in the moment. Um, for individuals who suffer from anxiety in particular, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT can be very, very effective because it gives you a tool to kind of reality check some of those automatic thoughts that can be very anxiety provoking. Um, but it really varies from individual to individual. So getting in, getting that initial consultation is going to be the most important piece. And then from there, they'll say, hey, maybe psychodynamics more appropriate or maybe CBT. Yeah. And you can fine tune. As far as finding this in your area, again, can be difficult, more difficult today than it was three years ago, thanks to the pandemic. Right. We've had an increased... Um, request essentially placed on the mental health care system as a result. Um, but we've also had more services available now. And if you're comfortable doing tele, there's a lot of full remote services where you can meet with people over the computer, which can be just as effective if you're comfortable in this medium. Um, and beyond that, there's a website called psychologytoday.com, which is essentially like a Yelp for therapists. And it allows you to put in your zip code and your insurance, and there can be some reviews. So that can give you more localized resources to your area. It's not a perfect resource, but it's often a starting point that I um, can, can point patients to, to to start to find something. The other option would be their insurance. Actually, you call the back of your insurance card, say, hey, I need therapists within a 50 mile range that accept my insurance. And oftentimes they can print you out a list of providers as well. And that is a great place to take a break here on Dr. Doctor before coming back with some things besides postpartum depression. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and we, I hope that you're enjoying this conversation <laughs> as much as Tom and I are enjoying this conversation. I know I'm learning a lot, and I know our listeners are uh, as well. Let, let's move on a little bit from pure postpartum depression to something I'll bet listeners haven't thought much about, and that's postpartum anxiety. I know I've certainly seen women through the years, and and maybe my assistants will label them incorrectly as postpartum depression, and the patient will say, I'm not depressed, um, but they're clearly you know, being crippled with anxiety. Talk a little bit about that type of mood disorder in the postpartum period. Great question, because postpartum anxiety can, depending on what study you look at, even be more common than postpartum depression. Yeah. And the way that it presents is you're an anxious new mom. And so it can be really hard to say, oh, is it just a new mom or is it anxiety? Right. Yeah. And it can be this difficulty sitting still, still, even though you're so tired, you're up washing the bottles for the fifth time that day. And you feel like you're pacing around checking the baby monitor for the seventh time, that 10 minute period, you know? <laughs> um, and then accompanying that, you can get a lot of 
worrying thoughts and concerns about the baby. Are they healthy? Are they okay? Maybe they're calling the pediatrician a couple times a day, hmm. things like that. And these are in some ways normal signs that you're adjusting to being a mother because this is how God made us to respond so that we can make sure our babies stay alive, right? We don't want moms moms who are not attuned in this way and all of a sudden baby's eating dirt and they're malnourished and <laughs> we're not calling doctor. Yeah. Um, but it can be heightened and it can be incredibly uncomfortable. And for the partners involved, they can be like, what is going on? Like, it's not that big of a deal. And you're like, but it is a big deal. And I, I can't explain it, but I can feel it. And this can lead to impacts on your sleep. It can lead to panic attacks. It can even lead to kind of more intrusive symptoms such as OCD, which I know you had brought up earlier. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about today. So anxiety is very, very common in the postpartum period, perhaps even more so than depression. And similar to that difference between baby blues and postpartum depression, I'd say when you get to that point, where the anxiety is so severe, you're scared to leave the house hmm. or you're scared to even like potentially prepare a meal for baby because what if it's poisoned? What if I did something wrong? What if I hmm. accidentally drop the knife when I'm preparing the meal and it flies across the room and hits the baby, right? That sounds <laughs> ridiculous, but I promise you to a postpartum brain, it doesn't sound so ridiculous. Um, if you find that you're not able to do the day-to-day -day things and or you're having significant panic attacks, that's when it's really time to reach out. Uh, great point. That's excellent. Is the treatment similar to depression, the same kind of drugs, the same kind of therapy? Yes and no. So what I first line treatment for anxiety-based disorders is actually an SSRI as well, but they're used differently. So we have mm -hmm. to start at a much lower dose anytime there's anxiety involved. I'll, I'll either cut in half or in a quarter, the starting dose of a medication all goes mm -hmm. slower. And then ultimately I have to go to a much higher dose because the pathways oh. in your brain that are responsible for anxiety-based disorders require higher doses of the medication to kind of saturate and get to those pathways than um. we do for depression. So say, for example, I'm going to talk shop here for a minute, but say I can stabilize someone with postpartum depression on hundred milligrams of Zoloft or sertraline. If it's postpartum anxiety, um, then I'm more likely to require 150 to 200 milligrams. Wow. I've very rarely been able to stabilize successfully in a, a true anxiety patient on less than like 150 to 200, that really upper end of the medication. And you referenced earlier, maybe four, maybe six weeks for depression on a medication to start kind of seeing the clouds part. Uh, what would you say about postpartum anxiety? So similar as well, because that's when we start to see the pathways really respond. Mm. And I, I should go back and clarify. Thank you for bringing this up. It's at the, the final dose that you're going to be stabilized on a full four to six weeks will give you the full extent of the response that you're going to experience. But oftentimes I can start someone on a medication and a week later they'll say, you know, it's definitely not better. I still have A, B or C going on but I'm trending in the right direction. I can see little signs. And so I'll look for those early signs of both tolerability, meaning no side effects, and then response, meaning things are starting to get a little bit better, but we are very far from where we ultimately want to be. That is great news that they can be getting better. Now, anxiety is somehow related to OCD, but it's different than that. Tell us more. So anxiety or OCD falls under the umbrella of an anxiety-based disorder, similar to PTSD okay. actually also falls under the umbrella of an anxiety-based okay. disorder. Um, and so the treatments for OCD from a medication standpoint can be similar, but the types of therapies we do are very, very specific in this setting. So OCD is when your anxiety gets so extreme, essentially, that you're caught in these ruts, if you will, and you have these intrusive thoughts that come in. Um, like what if I, and I'm going to use this example again, not to frighten anyone, but it's not uncommon in the postpartum period. What if I am cooking in the kitchen and I drop a knife on my baby, right? Mm -hmm. And you can have this constant worry, constant worry, constant worry. Or a lot of women will worry that what if my baby stops breathing in the middle of the night? And mm -hmm. it's more than the passing thought of, oh, that would be really bad. And then you kind of move on. It's just the thought will not go away, will not go away. And then you get the partnering compulsive actions. So sometimes you do something to try to get those thoughts to go away. Okay, so I'm worried that my baby's going to stop breathing in the middle of the night, so I'm going to check the baby monitor. And every time I check the baby monitor, that thought goes away. Well, this becomes a loop. And mm. all of a sudden, it, it, it's not I'm checking it every 10 minutes. It's I'm checking it every minute. I'm checking it every 30 seconds. I'm checking it every 10 seconds. And I have incredible anxiety because these thoughts come rushing in if I'm not checking the baby monitor every mm. 10 seconds. Um, so this can, postpartum OCD can pop up as a flavor of postpartum anxiety, if you will. And individuals who had OCD prior to baby being born are going to be at higher risk of their OCD flaring, essentially, in the postpartum period. So should some of those patients start uh, sertraline before they give birth? 
So if they have a known history and if they have mm-hmm. successfully stabilized on it in the past, it's going to depend. And this is where they need to work really closely, not only with their OB, but with their psychiatrist, because it's going to be, what was your time from last episode? If your mm-hmm. last OCD kind of acute decompensation was 15 years ago and you were you know, 16 years old, I might not worry about it. Um, if it was six months ago and you've never had a baby before we and we were trialing off medications, we might say, hey, this maybe isn't the time to go without our seatbelt, if you will. <laughs> and so it really is very situationally dependent. Um, and again, that's where you're going to do that very close monitoring. I have a lot of patients that say, hey, I want to try it off medications. No problem. I just want to see you every seven to 10 days. Right. And we need to have a low threshold to start this if we're seeing that it's getting to the point where it could impact not only your health, but baby's health. Uh-huh. And let's move on to probably the scariest uh, postpartum mood disorder. That's when depression or anxiety becomes ultimately more serious and develops into psychosis. There have been all of these horrific stories on the news through the years uh, about that. Let's talk some about that. Yeah. So postpartum psychosis, not to scare anyone, it can be a very scary disorder, but I will tell you the incidence of it is exceedingly rare. Much less than 1%. It's like 0.3% of new moms experience postpartum psychosis. Much less than the movies and the news would have us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's true with a lot of things in mental health, but that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) That's for a different show. (laughs) So, yeah, it's exceedingly rare, but when it does happen, it's considered a medical emergency. And I'll back up and define postpartum psychosis as essentially a, a break with reality to the point that you're seeing or hearing things that are not real. You have paranoia that is beyond just, I'm worried something bad could happen to baby. You know, the TV sending me messages, people can read my thoughts, that type mm-hmm. of a thing. If in the postpartum period you develop psychosis, immediately go to the ER, immediately tell your doctor, because this is considered a medical emergency because outcomes to both mom and or baby can be severe. We do have- Now, can the patient, the, the woman herself, diagnose herself as likely having this or doesn't need to be someone around her? The You'll- People who have hallucinations can tell you they have hallucinations and they'll be very unsettled by them. Um, And so it's sometimes it's someone around you that says, hey, that's not quite right. But oftentimes if someone is confident enough to say, hey, I'm I'm experiencing some things that feel really out of the ordinary, which is a very vulnerable statement to make in the postpartum period. Um, If she's willing to share that, you get help right away. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting, um, this is both to protect mom and baby because Suicide is closely associated with postpartum psychosis and then fetal homicide as well. Babies have been injured in this process. So that's why we get them treatment. The interesting thing, and this is from an academic perspective, when someone has postpartum psychosis, it doesn't mean they have schizophrenia. It doesn't mean they're going to be psychotic forever, anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's actually pathognomonic for a a mood disorder such as bipolar disorder. When I see Uh. postpartum psychosis, we kind of immediately start long-term treatment for bipolar because the two go hand in hand almost a hundred percent of the time. Interesting. Ah, so how do you treat that in the short term? You know, do you have to separate mom and baby for a while or can they be safely kept together? So it depends on the severity, but oftentimes they are separated, which sounds terrifying in this moment, but again, it's all about relative risk, right? What's greater risk to mom and baby, keeping them together to have that bonding time. Or if mom is not experiencing reality inconsistent in the way people around her are, is it more dangerous to keep them together? Right. And so oftentimes mom will go to a hospital for a short period of time. Um, Psychiatrists are specially trained in dealing with this. Mm. This isn't going to be six months in a psych ward and anything scary like the movies. (laughs) Oftentimes we're talking, you know, seven to 14 days, depending on the severity and what you're looking at. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. Um, You can start antipsychotic medications. It tends to clear up pretty quickly. And then it's just very, very close outpatient monitoring after that. Wow. So, Frenzy, you mentioned a little bit earlier when you were talking about male depression when two become one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know you're not just a psychiatrist. You're a Catholic psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, help and us I haven't caught on fire yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> help, uh, help, help listeners understand how, you know, your Catholic faith informs and motivates and drives how you meet uh, patients that are struggling from this and other serious disorders. Right. Well, and it's, I, gosh, what a loaded question. The first thing that comes to mind, Tom, it was from the CMA conference a couple of years ago mm. and the package everybody got, there was a, a beautiful little leaflet that said, I always see Jesus in the eyes of my patients and I have it framed. Mm. It's in my office right over here. <laughs> I love it. And I think that is so true. And I think in the world of medicine, we're all called to serve. And I think part of what drew me, I know part of what drew me to psychiatry is we're, dealing with a population that is so poorly understood 
and there's mm-hmm. so much bias and there's so much stigma. And if you want to go to the pain points and the people that need the highest level of care that don't always get it for whatever reason, this is where I felt called to serve. And I think that it helped me kind of form my vocation, vocational awareness, if you will, where I felt called, but it also day in and day out, because let me tell you, this can be a very challenging job as, a, as any field in medicine can be. But in those moments where you're really frustrated and people can get under your skin or your very anxious patient is sending you a message for the 45th time that day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay if you need to do that, guys, no problem. But um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to just take a breath and say, am I, am I seeing Jesus, am I recognizing the suffering? Am I meeting people and walking with them in their suffering? And there is, there's an urge in medicine to say, I ha- here's a problem, here's a solution, right? I was drawn to orthopedics for a little bit. Here's a broken arm, I'm just going to fix it. And the world of mental health <laughs> asks that we, that we walk with people during some of the most uncomfortable periods and say, here's a medication that's going to take six weeks. I'm sorry, it won't work tomorrow, but I'll walk with you in that six weeks. Wow. And I think that I, I, I don't think I could do my job fully without my faith to answer that question. Well, I don't, I don't think we've heard a more beautiful answer. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Francie, speaking of spiritual life, how can this impact those patients with postpartum mood disorders? Oh, great question. So because there's a lot of Catholics who think that, well, prayer will heal any mental problem. Yeah. I just write a prescription for it. It goes away. It's no problem. Or if I, (laughs) if I had a good prayer life, I wouldn't have this problem. Um, you know, and hence comes guilt. Yeah. But the reality is, is that as a result of original sin, we're all likely to experience different forms of suffering, right? We've all experienced bouts of depression, whether or not it qualifies as a major depressive disorder Mm -hmm. is a different conversation, but we've all experienced anxiety, depression, grief, loss. As a result of original sin, we will experience these things, right? And so is it a failing of your faith to experience these things? Absolutely not, right? Mm -hmm. If we go through the Bible, there's so many examples. Um, St. Therese comes to mind, right? Individuals who have suffered with very serious mental illness. She had regular bouts of suicidal ideation. And the question Which becomes, St. Therese? Like, of Liz- I can never pronounce it correctly. Of Liz- the little Liz- flower. Yep. <laughs> Liz- Lizux. <laughs> uh, so- <laughs> I know I'm not the only one out there that's had that thought before. Yeah. Where's um- Therese? Forget <laughs> So um, we have lots and lots of saints who have contended with different mental afflictions over time, you know, and I think this is a reminder that when you experience mental suffering, it's not a failing of your faith. It's actually an opportunity to grow in virtue, to offer that, to offer that pain, to offer that suffering and to grow closer to Christ. Right. And I think especially in the postpartum period, Mary can be with you in lockstep. Right. Mm. This woman was pregnant. She was turned away. She had a baby in a barn, <laughs> right? And then she, she sat at her son's feet as he died. Like no part of that is beautiful or glorious in the moment, mm. right? We have an oppor- a, a, a tendency to maybe romanticize it in hindsight. But this, if this was your plight of motherhood, you would be like, why me, God? Why are you punishing me, right? Yet she's one of the greatest women of all time. And so I think it's an opportunity to really align ourselves with the saints, open the Bible and recognize that we are not being punished because we experience these things in some ways. And I know it sounds roundabout, but it, it can be a gift and an opportunity to grow faith, to grow closer to our faith and the saints that really have lit, lit the way for us. Are there any particular resources you would recommend for women who are pregnant for the first time and those who are experiencing something that might be more than the baby blues afterwards? Right. So there's a lot of resources out there. And I actually, you know, if you're involved in your local parish community, I would recommend starting by by reaching out there in large part because this is going to allow you to create a community of close knit young mm-hmm. families and young women who have been through it yesterday. Right. They might have the hand me down clothes. They might have the doctor recommendations, all of these things that really help you get through the day to day. Whereas there's other websites such as NAMI, which I know I've given you before, National Alliance for Mental Illness, that has wonderful informational pamphlets and support groups out there. Um, But I often find that, especially within the Catholic group, starting within your parish is going to be one of the most helpful things because Mm. these are like-minded individuals who more often than not have been there very recently and can, can really walk with you through this process. It's interesting. You remind me when you say that it's one thing to experience this as part of maybe a big Catholic family with siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles around. And, and that's a very different experience than maybe the single mom without a support network. Um, if ever there's an example of how community is needed, 
it seems like postpartum, you know, mood disorders is a great example, mental health in general, of course, but especially in this very, very serious, very acute, you know, condition where everybody needs community and family um, wrapped around them quite literally. Right. And, and to piggyback onto that, mental illness is one of the few forms of illness out there where the individual withdraws from care right? If you have stomach cancer, you're throwing up, you're losing weight, you're uncomfortable, you're going in saying, what is wrong with me, doctor? If you're incredibly depressed or anxious, you do not want to leave the house. You don't want to let anyone know you're experiencing guilt Uh and shame. And so you'll isolate. So it's not only that these individuals benefit from community, but they benefit from community outreach, that that extra active step, because oftentimes you have no idea it's going on because Mm. it's happening behind closed doors and they're not communicating about it as as a result of the illness itself, right? Well, Francie, the devil must love love postpartum depression because isolation is such a wonderful opportunity for him to step in, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and it's such an easy thing to treat. Mm, I agree. So, Francie, what haven't we asked about postpartum mood disorders that we should have asked? Oh, good question. Let me not answer that question and maybe just uh, give you kind of an overarching things that I think are most important um, because I want to make sure we can really highlight a few things. First and foremost, this is incredibly common. Mm. Up to 90% of women have postpartum baby blues. Okay. You are not alone. You are not broken. It does not mean you are failing to experience the joy of motherhood, right? This means you are a normal woman going through a difficult time. Second. And this is going to be perhaps one of the more important, most important pieces that we literally just talked about. It can be really hard when you're going through a bout of this to reach out and to share. I encourage everyone to, because people can't read your minds. They don't know what's going on. But if you've been in these situations and you know what it feels like, even if you're, you have a friend who's recently expecting, sit down and say, hey, I, I want to give you some insight into what my experience was actually like, because it's not all rainbows and butterflies. And I want you to know it's okay if it doesn't go this way or that way. And, yeah. and I'll walk with you through that. And then making sure we're really, as a community, doing that extra step to reach out to women in this period, especially women who are single, who, are, who have very serious other afflictions going on. We know they've suffered traumas, abuse, um, rape potentially, or other serious mental health conditions in the past, we know they're going to be more vulnerable and need that active outreach during this time. Francie, so that was a beautiful way <laughs> beautiful way to end this episode of Dr. Doctor. We'll probably see you again, and we'll be back with the medical trivia answer after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this episode's trivia question on birth, the greatest topic we could ever discuss. <laughs> Yeah. So how many births on average were there each day in the United States? A lot. If you guessed 10,000, you were right. There were 3.61 million births in the United States in 2020. So uh, that's a lot of opportunities for postpartum mood disorders, especially when, as we heard, up to 90% of women experience them. Exactly. I mean, there's a, as you say, statistically, it's a target-rich environment. Uh, this is happening regularly, that is to say birth. And more women than not are going to struggle with some degree um, of some type of postpartum mood disorder. So from what you heard and from your perspective caring for these women, what were your top three takeaways, Chris? Well, you know, we can't limit it to three because one of them has to be um, – Francie's a remarkable Catholic psychiatrist, you know, <laughs> um, and, and her patients are so lucky, and I'm sure they may not realize that, but they they are. You, you know, there's so many great points she made. One of them I really liked was this concept of time and the diagnosis. If something persists beyond about two weeks, um, that that's not usual. That's that's something else that's going on. And then, of course, she pointed out suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts or psychosis, are you hallucinating? These are all big red flags that this is not just the usual thing. The second one I really liked was that idea of, in mental health in general, but in postpartum mood disorders particularly, cannot just get away without meds. Cannot just get an app for my phone and I'll be okay. Well, the reality is sometimes you need medications, not forever, but for the moment. Uh, We've had another guest that talked about in mental health, a medication can be the cast on a broken bone. The cast doesn't stay on forever. It just stays on long enough to let the bone heal. I really like that imagery. And then last, I think my favorite thing that she said, this idea about a counselor. 
that better can be the enemy of good. It doesn't have to be Dr. Phil, right? You just need to go. Maybe they'll be horrible. Okay, go once and then leave and find another one. But maybe you'll click. Uh, And maybe good is good enough to get you started so that you don't get more sick, especially in this very, very vulnerable time. So don't take the lack of the perfect counselor um, as an excuse or a reason not to pursue help. It's just too important. In about 30 seconds, tell us about your postpartum depression plan before birth. Yeah, this is a this is a new, I think, evolving concept, but a lot of listeners know that women have birth plans. This is how I want my birth to go, if at all possible. Well, if 90% of women who have babies are going to struggle with a postpartum mood disorder, here's an idea. How about you, particularly husbands, have a postpartum depression plan? <laughs> what happens if my wife suddenly says, like Francie's, uh, Francie said to her husband, I don't think you love the baby. The husband should not be shocked. He should think, ah, this is what that McGovern Stroud guy were talking about uh, when they said have a plan. Who do I call? What do I say to them? What do I say to my wife? What are some of the resources in our parish, in our school, in our community that maybe I could plug into? In the moment That's- of a crisis is not the time to be solving the crisis, right? Great suggestion. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top and you can search over 275 episodes by topic or guest. And now you can join us on our video version of our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link that's at the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org. If you've got a question about something we've covered, a comment, if there's something you'd like us to cover, please just click where it says submit a question. We would love to hear from you. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.